Hello, everybody. Can you smell that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Debates. Right around the corner. We got some debate-specific talks. We're going to talk about Biden's strategy and Elizabeth Warren's strategy and Pete Buttigieg's strategy. And if you're a high-polling candidate, how you handle stuff. If you're a low-polling candidate, how you handle stuff. How many people are on the stage? What's the right number? How many people will still be in there by the end of the debates? Well, not the end of the debates, the beginning of the caucuses. And we're all going to do it with uh, uh, Tom Hallahan, a professor of communication at USC's Annenberg School. But before we do that, I got to remind you guys that the way that you support this show is by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can support the PX3 show. Make sure that we keep uh, doing interviews like this one. And as always, a reminder... If you would like to get more of this show, we already give you two episodes a week. You want a little Minnesota on Monday? You want a little mini episode on Friday? Make sure you don't miss any of the breaking news reaction. Well, that's why you go to uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level. Enough of talking about how we support the show. What do you say we get right into things? My guest today is Tom Hollihan. He is a professor of communication, director of the doctoral program at USC's Annenberg School of Communication. He teaches media and political classes. Welcome to the show, Tom. Happy to be here. Now, uh, debates are of a particular fascination to me, and, and you have so many great thoughts about them. So let's let's just kind of start right here with the, the the big meta picture of debates in general. How much are debates an actual back and forth uh, of ideas in the way that, let's say, a college or high school debate would be? And how much are they, at this point in 2019, uh, media events where everybody gets their own opinions out there? Well, they certainly are media events. They differ from intercollegiate debates or interscholastic debates that might occur at the high school level, for instance, in the fact that there is a reporter or someone usually asking questions and controlling the flow of the conversation in a political debate, whereas in a regular tournament debate, the students engage each other much more directly. Uh, But they are substantive contests, and they do provide opportunities for the candidates to lay out their positions respond to questions and defend those positions. So it seems like, especially with what we have coming up now, where we have debates that are starting very, very early. We have a lot of people announced. Uh, that seems like something that will continue or has continued that the trend has been more and more people are up there on the stage. Uh, is there a reasonable expectation that anybody can really get much more than a soundbite out when there's 10 people on stage and we're going to do it twice in two nights like we will in June? 
Well, it's it's difficult for any candidate to really stand out in such a crowded field. Now, obviously, if we look back to the 2016 race, mm-hmm. the candidate who really developed the strategy to stand out was Trump, and he did it by being outrageous, um, by attacking his opponents, by being everything that we didn't expect the presidential candidate to be. Um, hopefully, we won't see that same thing happen in the Democratic ranks. I don't expect to see it happen this time. But I do think candidates will be trying to emerge as unique and different from their peers. And it's very difficult when you have, as you say, so many people that are trying to you know, get some attention. Yeah, I guess if you look back at 2016, not only was Trump outrageous, but but also he seemed to just be better at being that level of outrageous because when other candidates tried to come back and and kind of use the same barbs back on Trump, they felt weird and unnatural and and they certainly didn't have quite the same effect that Trump did when when he was uh you know just uh, destroying people with uh, the kind of outrageous antics that became came to define him. Yeah, I mean, if there is a lesson to be learned from 2016, it's that you can't play Trump's game because he is, frankly, more uh, effective at that game. He's willing to go where most other candidates won't be willing to go, and he's willing to be outrageous and to to make facts up and and to you know just say whatever pops into his brain in a, in a way that other candidates are not. I would also point out though that the the kind of anti uh, orthodox messaging that appeals to conservatives tends not to appeal to Democrats or to liberals in the same way. So any liberal candidate who tried to behave like Trump would end up alienating the party base rather than pleasing it. And uh, that's a fundamental difference between how liberals and conservatives view the world. Because conservatives are suspicious about government, then attacks on government and attacks on other political figures are much more inclined to be appealing to them because they're feeding narratives that they already believe to be true. Do you think that there's any more of that with with, with uh, some kind of anti-authoritarian candidates that are polling fairly well, like uh, like, like Bernie Sanders is, where where he has made uh, uh, you know quite a bit of uh, substantial hay about uh, pointing out some uh, systemic problems, not only within the government, but also his own party. We, we do see uh, noteworthy differences across the political spectrum within the Democratic Party now. Um, and, and we have some candidates that are trying to pick a lane that is much further to the left, much more inclined to embrace very substantive change than other candidates would embrace. But the noteworthy thing about all those candidates is none of them are rejecting the role of government. None of them are saying government shouldn't have a responsibility to engage in certain kinds of issues like health protection for people or environmental concerns or maybe even gun control. They're all saying there is an important and substantive role for government in these areas. Uh, which is contrary, of course, to a Republican message, which is turn free enterprise loose, allow people to be responsible for their own health care. The only place where the Republicans seem to want more intrusion is on women's health issues uh, and issues like abortion, where they would argue for a more activist government. Yeah, although I think you're also you're 
that are very noteworthy. Yeah. Although you're also kind of seeing, you're, you're kind of seeing the new emergence of, uh, you know, like online or big tech stuff, uh, uh, that, that seems to be a conservative, uh, a target for more legislation, but, but certainly your point is well taken. So, uh, let, let, let's take a look at just the kind of classes of candidates that we have going into these debates in Miami at the end of the month, because to me, there's sort of three strata of candidates and, and we'll start with the strata that really only has one person in it. And to me, that's Joe Biden. He is polling uh, better than anybody. He is by far the most known quantity. He spent eight years in the White House. He's going, he's currently kind of running on the record of uh, his tenure with Barack Obama, as well as obviously his time in the Senate. Uh, is my guess would be that he wants to go into these debates and all debates and really just not screw up, specifically considering his history of, 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 of gaffes. Is there anything else that when you are the favorite and in going into a debate that you definitely want to cement or anything specific to Biden that you believe uh, would constitute a victory for him? Well, I, I think you're right that what you're going to hear from from Biden is Obama, Biden, Obama, Biden, Obama, Biden. He's going to wrap himself as much as possible in Barack Obama's uh, legacy. He's going to try to evoke a nostalgia for a time when, frankly, politics was uh, was less divisive and was, well, there may have been political differences. It wasn't as mean-spirited a time as we seem to have entered now. Um, he's going to try to argue that we need to return to a kind of more, more normal uh, political discourse and a time when uh, America is not attacking its allies. Uh, so he's going to try to craft a literally a nostalgia kind of campaign, I would submit. Um, he's also really trying to sell the notion that there were Democrats and independents who were lost to Trump who can be enticed back uh, because Trump hasn't, in fact, delivered on many of the promises that he made to them and, in fact, may have in some ways worsened their lives and situations, uh, particularly with regard to farmers who were impacted by the trade war with China or uh, people in auto assembly states whose jobs may be impacted by the trade conflict. So, you know, he, he is he is clearly running in a centrist kind of lane. Um, then, as you mentioned, the, the next uh, group of candidates I would submit in terms of popularity are probably Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren, um, they're running on a track that is significantly further to the left. Um, they're attempting to appeal to younger voters. I think Bernie is finding that he has not really expanded his base, that when he was the only left alternative to Hillary Clinton and he had that lane all to himself, he, he picked up a pretty strong level of support, but now he's splitting that support up. Uh, with Warren and also with Pete Buttigieg, who I would say is in that uh, is in that left leaning uh, lane. Uh, and then you've got candidates who are scrambling to try to create any yeah. sort of sense of recognition for their candidacy at all. Well, well actually, and, hold on. Can um, I, if, if I could, Klobuchar, for instance, in that category, if I, if I could just I'm circle sorry. back before we get too far away from it, because I'm, I'm curious your opinion. If, if you are surprised that Joe Biden has been allowed to sort of, run uh, as as uh, apart ideologically from the rest of the top tier pack because everybody seemed to 
be be you know he's pretty much running as the only out there moderate candidate and normally that's that's the rule not the exception it, it seems kind of weird that there's there's really only one candidate he's the number one guy polling and he's the only one uh, saying hey i i I, 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 want- I don't think that's i don't think that's true you don't th- okay. I, I think there are other moderates in the race no, I, I think there are other moderates in the race. They just don't have the name recognition that he has. I, I certainly think Klobuchar is trying to run as a moderate. Okay. I, I think, uh, you know, Hickenlooper uh, from Colorado is is clearly he trying is, to run as a moderate. Yeah. But but I think Biden has the name recognition. Yeah. Well, here let let's let's go back to that uh, that that group of uh, progressive, uh, many of them senators that have certainly been introduced to the nation, they have uh, some degree of, of you know, uh, favorable or unfavorable with, with certain voters. But I think Miami is going to be the first moment where they can maybe craft their message in a different way. This is their kind of uh, uh, way to sharpen their point. Is there any kind of strategy to that, that uh, knowing what your weakness is and trying to either run against it or knowing what your strength is and trying to hammer that home? Well, I mean, there's an old saying, sometimes it's hang a lantern on your, on your weakness, you know, instead of trying to outrun from it, make it a, make it something that is an issue in your behalf. Obama did that with his youth and inexperience, you know, by arguing it was time for change. He linked a message of change to both his youthfulness and his, the fact that he was not yet well known, hadn't been jaded by Washington politics. So I think People like Pete Buttigieg are already picking up on that kind of strategy. Um, You know, I think Sanders has always tried to run on the notion that I'm a cranky guy and that you should support me because I'm willing to go be cranky. Yeah. Uh, I think Elizabeth Warren, very confrontational, particularly about uh, banking and, and the wall street and those kinds of issues in a similar sort of way. Uh, you know, the challenge is, can can candidates avoid being one-dimensional? Uh, because those kinds of issues appeal to some, but not all voters. And so candidates who can be successful usually have defining issues and a defining personality type, but they also find a way to be genuine enough to connect with and appeal to a wider swath of voters. And, uh, even that's what we have yet to see from any of these candidates. I think Biden has uh, identified what for many Democrats is the key issue in this race. And that's an anti-Trump message. Now, I don't think that's enough. And I think in the end, there are a lot of Democrats that are going to make their decision based on literally who has the best chance to defeat Trump. And if they're convinced that it's Biden, I think people will support Biden and they'll support him with enthusiasm. But if they see a more exciting candidate who they think has as strong or an even stronger pathway to victory, they'll lunge for that youthful, uh, different candidate, in my opinion. Uh, The person who I think could be a breakthrough in that regard is Buttigieg or maybe Kamala Harris. Uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen Cory Booker catch any kind of attention thus far, um, because I think he's very telegenic and has has a c- compelling biography. 
Um, but there's just so many candidates in this race <laughs> that it's hard for it's hard for voters to focus clearly enough to make choices among them. And I think that uh, although obviously you and I and all the dear listeners to this podcast have been paying very close attention to this race up till this point, uh, Miami will probably be the outer edges of mainstream attention <laughs> of, of, you know, uh, uh, let's really start thinking about this because we're going to, th- these guys are going to start standing next to each other on a stage and uh, th- there will be natural comparisons. Uh, let- let's go back to Elizabeth Warren for a quick second. She really saw her, poll numbers take a northward turn after she was the first of the candidates to call for impeachment after the Mueller report. Uh, that obviously is something that right. is a, a constant uh, source of conversation <laughs> in D.C. How do you think that it plays as a campaign issue as we start to get closer and closer to the actual caucuses and primaries in 2020? Well, what Elizabeth Warren found is that it, it uh, deeply appeals to the hardcore Democratic base. It does not seem to be broadening the base of Democratic voters. Even many of those who are who are not committed Democrats, but independents who lean Democrat, are not motivated by an impeachment argument. They're much more motivated by bread and butter issues or environmental issues. You know, environment is is polling very, very well for Democratic candidates. Uh, maybe some sense that climate change has, has be, become finally an issue on the radar screen. Um, so I, I think the Nancy Pelosi mindset of let's slow walk it, let's continue keeping the threat, let's continue the investigations, let's see if we can surface something, but let's not really initiate a process of impeachment uh, until it looks like we would be forced to bring it to a resolution before the election, because there's no chance, given the current makeup of the Senate, that the Senate would convict him. And they're afraid that Trump would spin it as a victory. So you try to keep the base motivated by uh, continuing the impeachment talk. But but I think she's quite deliberately slow walking it uh, because they know it doesn't appeal to moderates and could, in fact, turn against them. Um, I You know, Warren's support is actually kicking up. I, I just uh, just heard this morning that when you look at her uh, her support in Iowa, even though her her core numbers haven't shifted very much, the enthusiasm that Iowa voters are expressing for Elizabeth Warren is intensifying. Yeah, and that, of course, uh, the enthusiasm gap is one of the challenges that Biden faces. Yeah, that was, I believe, a Des Moines Register and Seltzer poll that showed her and Buttigieg were at the top of the very favorable ratings with her at, I think, 38 and him at 37. So uh, uh, and that's really I've always thought that for Buttigieg, that's a must win state for him because he he doesn't really have much of a shot in New Hampshire because of where Bernie Sanders and uh, uh, Joe Biden are from. He has some demographic challenges in South Carolina. So. If you're going to if you're going to win one of those early states, like Iowa is the one that would reward a candidate like him. Uh, so, yeah, well, he, he needs to try to hang on until California. And I think you're exactly right. Iowa and the caucuses are meant for a candidate such as Buttigieg, who can mobilize young people and um, turn them out for the caucuses in a way that other candidates, you know, have difficulty getting people to go to a caucus. Um, but Buttigieg needs to hang on to, to big blue California and, uh, and 
you know, it's at that point that I think the nomination is essentially decided because candidates stop being regarded as credible and they stop being able to raise money and media coverage turns to that persistent question of why are you still around? Yeah. Why don't you get out and, and make it clear to people? I mean, the press just does not become your friend at a certain point. Do you think the fact that these, I mean, these, these debates are going to be two days each for the foreseeable future. Right. Uh, the fact that the media landscape around them is so much more intense than they have been in the past that uh, do you think that we are going to see uh well here let me let me just ask you a general question or a more specific question how many of these candidates of these 20 that'll be there on the stage of Miami do you think go into Iowa next January maybe a dozen yeah so eight eight there there's going to be enough social you know, proof Iowa is pretty Iowa's pretty cheap to campaign in. Yeah. I mean, you, you can get on a bus and, and you can drive around Iowa and most of them aren't going to be doing many media buys. They're going to be, you know, for a caucus, media buys are of, of little real help. And so I think a lot of them are going to hang on at least until the first caucus occurs and that shakes them out. You know, what's happened today is that people enter this race not because they really expect they have a shot at winning it, but they're they're trying to enhance their own political celebrity in a sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look at somebody like de Blasio getting in, for instance, who's who's got, you know, he, he's pulling at zero percent. Uh, Gillibrand staying in, pulling around zero percent. There's there is no prospect, I think, for the two of them to do well. Michael Bennett being another one, but they enhance their reputation for for a longer game of politics. They get a national uh, speech tour kind of recognition. They maybe keep their names out there as possible VP candidates. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is not about really thinking they have a shot at winning this election. Some like Jay Inslee are really trying to to be all about one issue. He's yeah. trying to really deepen our conversation about climate. So there are lots of motivations for people to enter these races beyond their ability to actually win them. So there are a few candidates and, and, and you've mentioned uh, a few of them that seem to have a, a, a grassroots support, uh, but this will be their, their introduction to the nation. And, and let's say Buddha judge right. is probably the one who's polling the best. Uh, uh, then you have some more fringe candidates like Andrew Yang and uh, Marianne Williamson, for example, that are are running on specific kinds of messages. They are uh, uh, strangers to the national political landscape. Uh, what do you think a, a stage like this means to candidates like that? First of all, the actual number of viewers is not likely to be that high. Uh, I would love to see a statistic it reported that says huge numbers of people turned in um, because that would, that would be so unusual and it would be such a sign of how motivated the party has become. But frankly, that's unlikely to happen. So what happens instead is that it's not who actually watches the entire event, but it's how the media spins the key moments of the event, who gets the conversation in the post debate spin and who has the sound bites that get get caught up and and uh, recirculated in various media forms 
and who makes a mistake that you know takes them out of it. I think that's what's more likely to matter. Historically, at least, what we know about these debates is that for primary debates, voters don't really tune into a debate until they're within a month of the election in their state. Mm-hmm. So if I don't live in Iowa, I'm, I'm not watching what's happening in Iowa for the most part. In the old days, you know, people had to watch the political news. Nowadays with 500 channels and, and my direct TV, I can completely avoid politics if I want. Yeah. A lot of people are making that path. So it's, it's the media spin that matters more than the actual who watches the contest. And if, as I say, if there's a big audience, that will be the first sign that something is really radically different this year. And if there's a huge audience for these debates, then the Republicans had better recognize that they're in for a, for a lot of trouble. Do you think that some of the some of the, the 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 numbers that have come in on these town halls, where you're getting Bernie Sanders over two million viewers just for a Bernie Sanders town hall on on Fox News? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think it's. I think it's a great sign. I think it's a, you know, 2018 showed there was a lot of, there was a lot of rage out there. You know, we're at an interesting point in history because this is clearly not a conventional time. If, if you look at all the historical political science, rational choice models, somebody who has the economy in this condition would, would be polling much better than this president is polling. Yeah. But he has not managed to increase his numbers beyond his base. And his negatives are extraordinarily high. And so if the Democrats are indeed united by one thing, it's opposition to Trump. And, you know, that may mean that the chance that the party fragments and shoots itself in the foot uh, is lessened this year because the motivation not to do that among the voters is so very strong. Do, do you subscribe to the idea that the candidates should be uh, kinder to each other throughout the primaries so they don't expose uh, weaknesses? Well, I, I think they should be respectful to each other, less about from a political strategic perspective than from what's good for democracy. I mean, political civility enhances democratic deliberation and teaches people how to respectfully disagree. It, calling people names, shouting them down, heckling them, name calling, making threats. This is not good for democracy. It's really not. And, you know, our political leaders model how people beyond Washington conduct themselves in their political engagements and disagreements. And healthy disagreement is necessary to a democracy. We do seem to be in a very weird era where uh, anything is permissible if the other guy did it first, right? That is that is the that that yeah, seems to I mean, be the 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 cause of our age is uh, sure this is wrong, but have you seen what they're doing? Well, we're living in these completely parallel media ecologies, right? Yeah. 63% of Republicans say they get most of their information from one news source, and that's Fox. In contrast, Democrats get their news from a variety of news sources, but virtually none of them get getting it from Fox. And that, that's, that's a kind of a toxic media culture that has terrible consequences. And so if, if you watch only one outlet, you may never hear certain kinds of issues discussed. 
And you'll see it in interviews surfaced all the time. People say, really, I didn't know that because that never got reported on the news channel that I watched. Well, that's, that's has consequence. Do you think that it's a mistake for the DNC to not host one of these on Fox? You know, it's a tough question. On the one hand, I think there is advantage to going into the lion's den, if you will. On the other hand, Fox has not shown itself, in, in my judgment, to, to frankly be fair. I mean, beyond one or two people who sit in the, the news chairs and not in any of the opinion programming on Fox, uh, the network hasn't shown itself to conduct itself in a fair manner. I mean, if you go back and look, for instance, just look at the coverage on Fox on some of the issues like the Kavanaugh hearings, as an example, and compare it to the way those stories get covered in other networks. And you'll pretty quickly see that, that this is not a network that is a, that is a, a fair source of information about politics. And so on the one hand, I admire Buttigieg for being willing to go to Fox. On the other hand, there's huge risk in allowing Fox to manipulate the narrative the way they have shown a willingness to do. And uh, it's not just Fox, but I, I think because so many Republicans are dependent on Fox that they, they share a, a greater responsibility than any of the others for the condition that we're in. I, I do think that there is that they are trying their best to be on their best behavior, considering they have been the outlet for the most watched Democratic town halls. Uh, you know, Buttigieg's was very well watched. Yeah. Bernie's right now is the number one. Uh, and Bernie probably got his. Maybe, but. Yeah. How they pick the clips and talk about it on things like their other programming, like uh, Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity or. Tucker Carlson, you know, is another story altogether. Oh, of course. And you have to yeah. understand that people's news literacy is such that they don't understand what's the newscast, what's the town hall, what's the opinion show. It's just a stream of political content to lots of people. And so, so it's how they carve up the pieces, how they decide what questions to ask. I think diminishes my confidence that they're a fair broker in this process. I mean, certainly we are, uh, you know, many, many, many rightfully believe that this is a, a, a weaponized media culture, for sure. <laughs> there is uh, there is no doubt. Yeah, about and it's that. worsened by social media, right? Because if I share my posts, I'm sharing them with like-minded people who already agree with my views. And so we deepen these echo chambers in social media sharing. Well, Tom, I agree with you that the only honest, fair broker of these kinds of facts are right here on podcasts like mine, where I was very happy to have you as our guest. Uh, Tom Hallahan, professor of communication and director of the doctoral program at USC's Annenberg School of Communication. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. This has been a, a, a treat. Thanks. Nice talking to you.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>